In the end, it's our ideals, our values, that built America. From the crew of Apollo 8, values that allowed us to forge a nation. We close with good night. To me, the flag has been more than just merely an inspiration. Good luck. I am not a perfect servant. I am a public servant. And God bless all of you. They have chosen to risk death rather than slavery. All of you on the good earth. And therein lies the road to war. This is History in the Making. I'm Rob Sims, and you're listening to Episode 6, The World Reshuffled. What does it take to convince a crowd to do something? Maybe even just one person. Persuasion can be a really powerful tool. But what do you do when people just refuse to be convinced? Can you trick them? Can you tell them you're doing something completely different, knowing that one day it'll come back to benefit them? I know it's been a little bit since we did the last episode, and so I'd like to start this out with a brief recap, just of the past couple years, maybe 495 to 490. And like most things right now and in the coming decades, things start with Themistocles. Themistocles had been pushing his way into the public life of Athens for some time. If he was alive today, we would see him as a networking guru, like I said, he hung out by the gyms to connect with the wealthy families that would come there. He would invite prominent musicians to come and practice at his house so that he could make the connections with the other people that wanted to listen to these musicians. And in all fairness, a lot of the details around his rise to prominence are uncertain. But the agenda of Themistocles is pretty clear. Themistocles was arguably the first person in Western culture to prepare for public service by practicing law. And in doing so, he was hundreds, if not thousands of years ahead of his time. Today in Congress, an education in law is hands down the most popular choice. And so Themistocles practiced and he waited. And in 493, the ambitions of Themistocles were at last realized. He was elected to be Archon. This was one of the few positions that you could still be elected to instead of just chosen by random lot in Athens. And once elected Archon, one of the things that he started pushing for, really his main thing, was to move the port associated with Athens. Now, Athens, as you probably know, is a couple miles from the sea. It expands all the way to the ocean now, but back then it was about three miles from the coast. And what Athens used as a port was this really just open bay. It was hospitable. It was pretty easy to get in and get out and load and unload all your stuff, but there was no real good way to defend it. So what Themistocles was saying was that the port needed to be moved north just a bit. It was a little bit longer of a walk, maybe three miles from Athens, but it had these inlets that you could build fortifications around and defend. It would make for a great dock. And this idea worked. It stuck. People liked it. And construction is believed to have been started in that year. Themistocles had waited decades for power. He had been practicing both when he was a schoolboy, like we talked about, practicing speeches, and now finally he was able to stand before the assembly and push his ideas over the city. And it came to an abrupt end. 493 was also the year that Miltiades showed up. You remember Miltiades, right? 
He was running from Persia. He was a tyrant originally established by Athens in the northern part of the Aegean Sea. You see, Miltiades was one of the only people around that had not only fought the Persians in the Ionian Revolt, and been a key player in that revolt as well, but had fought for the Persians. He knew how they operated. He was someone really good to have on your side if you thought you were going to go to war with Persia. And Athens really did suspect something was going to happen soon. This was very fresh in their memory. It was only a couple years ago that they had fought the Persians. And it was right about this time that a play came out known as The Fall of Miletus. This was believed to be one of the first plays actually centered on historical events instead of mythology. And in it, it depicts the Persians wiping out Miletus. And the audience got visibly upset when this was depicted. Not only was the play banned, but the playwright, the author, was fined. And so as Athens was realizing that Persia was coming for them, and that war was maybe not inevitable, but it was going to be pretty darn hard to avoid, when Miltiades showed up with all this experience fighting the Persians, the focus shifted to him. He was elected a general, and as Miltiades grew in power, Themistocles began to fade into the background. Athens knew that the clock was ticking, and that it was only a matter of time before Persia arrived. And like we talked about last episode, it was in 490 that Persia came back to pay back Athens for what they had done. Persia had already crushed the rebellious islands around Athens. Athens had watched its allies go up in smoke, and they knew that they were next. To make matters worse, in 491, just a year before the Persians showed up, is when Cleomenes got into it with the other king of Sparta. Remember, Sparta had two kings. Cleomenes was able to depose the other king over a disagreement. The problem was, then Cleomenes was accused of being crazy for the way he did it. He was brought back to Sparta under a trick, and then, depending on who you believe, he was either murdered or committed suicide. But he was dead, and he was one of the baddest guys walking Greece at the time. And this other king that left Sparta, this deposed man of Greece, where do you think he ran to? Like many others before him, he set his sights to Persia. This deposed king ran to Persia and joined their side. Not only was Persia coming far outnumbering anything that Greece could offer, but they also had one of the superstars of Athens, Hippias, who was a tyrant previously, and now they had one of the Spartan kings. They had one of the top dogs in each city. And both of these men, a former king and a former tyrant, were returning as a part of a Persian army. And so to pick up where we left off last time, Persia was back. They had an army of about 20,000 men, and they were backed by perhaps 100 ships. And while they were there to generally subdue the Aegean Sea and everything in that area, they also had a very specific mission. Punish Athens. Hippias, the old tyrant of Athens, was brought back by Persia, and it was him that directed the Persians where to land, on the plains of Marathon. If you look at it on a map, it's this pretty wide open bay with flat land all in front of it, perfect for Persian cavalry and archers. And off to the northeastern side of this bay is this peninsula. It's called the Dog's Tail, and frankly, it kind of looks like one. But this is where the Persian fleet is believed to have anchored. The first move for Athens, of course, was to send for help. We can't take on Persia by ourselves, And so they sent a runner 
This runner covered the distance from Athens to Sparta in two days. That's 130, 140 miles. We're looking at, you know, 70 miles a day. And when he arrives in Sparta, he pleads with them. He's recorded as saying, The Athenians beg you for your assistance. They beg you not to stand by idly while the most venerable, the most respectable city in the whole of Greece is crushed. But the Spartans, in this strangely true-to-form way, say, We can't come right now. We'd be happy to. We'd love to come. But we're in the middle of this religious ceremony right now, and it's not customary for us to walk off to war until it's over. The Spartans at this time say, yeah, we can come help, but it'll be about a week, maybe 10 days before we can get there. And so this runner from Athens turns around and he heads back. And Athens has to decide what to do. There is a 20,000 man army coming to destroy them, and it's only a six hour march away. And the city debates, do we stay and defend the walls? Do we pay off Persia? Should we surrender to Persia? But Miltiades has an answer. Miltiades wants to go and bottle them up in this plain. And he's generally seen as trusted. He's one of the only people in the city that have experience fighting the Persians. And so the Athenian army begins to march. And in the end, the only help they receive is not from Sparta, but from Plataea, a small city-state to the north. And they're only able to send 800, maybe 1,000 men. And they meet outside the plains of Marathon. They bottle the Persians in. And so you have this giant Persian army with the fleet arrayed behind it, anchored around the dog's tail, that peninsula. And then you have the Athenian hoplites bottling the Persians into this plain of Marathon. There are really only two passes that come out of it, and Athens has control over them both. But once again, the question is raised, what do we do? It's one question to decide if you're going to go meet an army. It's a whole nother question once you're standing there looking at this giant army that outnumbers you two, maybe three to one, if you want to fight it or not. Should we leave? Should we stay here? Should we try to offer battle to the Persians? The Persians have cavalry. They have archers. We have nothing to answer them with. Pretty much in the Athenian allied army at this point is a hoplite. They have heavy armor. They're not really that fast. They have no answer for cavalry or archers. And so the arguments break out again. Now, the way Athens is run from a military standpoint is that there are 10 generals. Each general is elected by one of the tribes, all 10 tribes. And then in addition to these 10 generals, there is a war archon, kind of the, the top general that's elected over the city. And the tribal generals, the 10 generals, are split evenly. It's five and five. Half of them want to go back and try to defend the city. That's what the walls of Athens are built for, right? Let's get behind it and fight the Persians from there. The other half says, no, we need to stay right here. We might be able to attack the Persians. And leading this group is Miltiades. Miltiades says that right now is the time to attack. And his reasoning for this is excellent. I mean, the way that Persia had brought down a lot of the other cities was not only through direct force, through attacking and sieging the city, but through exploiting the divisions within these cities. They would go in and find just a couple people to open the gates and then they would swarm in and take it. Miltiades was worried that if they left Athens undefended for too long, the Persians could jump back on their ships, circle around to Athens real quick, and Athens would throw open the gates to them. Athens did not have an army at this point. It was in Marathon. So if a Persian army showed up on the doorstep of Athens, what are they going to do? 
one of the things that made this even harder was that the way power was shared with these generals is that it would rotate day by day. So it was a cycle. One day it would be person A's turn, and then the next day it would be person B's turn, and so on. And it would keep switching through all these generals, which I find crazy inefficient. But Aristides, this lover of the law, this example to the people, found a way to make this work. When it came around to his turn, instead of arguing for what he thought was best, he instead looked to Miltiades and said, you know what? I trust you. I'm going to give you command instead for today. And in doing this, made an example to the other generals. And everybody seemed just a little bit more favorable to Miltiades' plan. But even though Miltiades was viewed in a little bit more favorable light, what it really all came down to was the final vote of the War Archon. Now, there's quite a few ways the story is told, including the council that I just relayed to you. But what I'm giving to you here is what I think is the most likely way that things happened. There were a couple different stories as to how the actual battle of Marathon kicked off. What was the final thing that made these two sides clash? This is the one that I think is the most likely, the most believable. Is that as this war archon was deciding his vote messengers showed up, they said that the cavalry of Persia, the most feared aspect of the Persian might, was away. The cavalry was being loaded onto the ship so that it could go back, circle around, and take Athens while the army was away. And even though the cavalry was on the ships, the main part of the Persian army, the infantry, were on the beaches. Miltiades sees this advantage. He says we need to attack right now. The cavalry can't come, the army is stuck on the beach right now is when we have to hit them. He pushes this to the council. The war archon is convinced, throws his final vote in with Miltiades, and command of the army is given to Miltiades. Now let's set the stage a little bit here. What did it actually look like to fight in the Greek army? What did it look like as the Greeks prepared to go down and fight the Persians? The way the Greeks had aligned themselves, because they knew that they were vastly outnumbered, was that they had to stretch out the center parts of their line. If they stretched out the whole thing, if it was one thin, shallow wall of hoplites, the Persians might be able to smash through it. And if they stacked themselves up deep, the Persians would encircle them. And so two tribes were spread out in the center, and all the other tribes, three on one side and three on the other, were stacked in a thicker, a more normal formation. So the wings were really heavy and the middle was thin. And the two tribes that were in the middle were the tribes of Themistocles and Aristides. They were only four ranks deep, which was nothing for these Greeks back then. Normally it'd be ranks of 12 at a minimum. Sometimes fights had ranks as deep as 50, though that generally came later. The other thing they did to compensate for the Persians, and this seems just like amateur hour to us, but they decided to run into battle. And what makes this so strange is that hoplites, Greek warriors, had never done this before. You had to keep your formation tight to be effective back then. And so the idea of charging into battle to minimize how much time the Persians can shoot at you with their arrows was a totally new concept. And when they moved in a phalanx, when you would fight in a phalanx, if you were a Greek, you would be arranged according to your tribe. And subsequently, the people that you were related to would often be very close to you. But it wouldn't be just your family. It would also be the prominent statesmen in your tribe. And so you might look to your right as you're marching and see your 
father, your brother-in-law. And then you would look to your left and you would see President Obama. And now that we've got that sorted out, how did this thing kick off? Some of the sources I've seen said that Miltiades waited until the next day in order to get ready. But as soon as there was enough light, as soon as the sun was up, Miltiades stepped out and surveyed the scene. He was a veteran of the Ionian Revolt. He had fought the Persians before and against. When he rebelled, Persia turned against him and chased him all the way back to Athens. He narrowly escaped with his life. And as he is standing there looking at the Persian army, he turns back to the Greeks and says two words at them. The Greeks began to move. A chant broke out. They would use it to keep time, and it was a prayer to Apollo. As they grew closer, war cries began to break out. They grew even closer and arrows began to rain down, and so the Greeks broke into a run. The hoplites of Athens and Plataea ripped into the Persians. They hit them hard on the wings and they held together, but barely in the center. The Persians kept their elite in the center, and so when Aristides and Themistocles and their tribes rushed into Persia, they were met with the best troops that Persia had to offer. And the Persians caught the Greek advance and began to push it back. On the wings, though, the Greeks did better, and they ripped into the Persian lines. The tribes of Aristides and Themistocles were able to hold the line long enough for the other wings of the Greek forces to wrap around, to almost surround the Persians. They tore into the Persians like this for so long that the Persians lost heart, and they began to fall back. Themistocles and Aristides received their support from the wings and together they pushed the Persians back onto the beaches of Marathon, into the sea, and the Persians began climbing onto their ships to flee. But this was not the battle. It was not over by a long shot. And some of the most brutal fighting took place as the Persians climbed up their ships to get away. The war archon was killed on the beach. Several of the generals were killed on the beach. But always the survivors, Themistocles, Aristides, and Miltiades, continued to push the Persians broke. The survivors got back onto their ships and left. The Greeks had taken the beach at Marathon, but the ordeal was not over yet. The Persians still had access to the sea. They still had the majority of their fleet, and all they had to do was sail around the peninsula to arrive at Athens. And so after waking up early and fighting a battle, the Athenian army had to turn around and go back to Athens. They left to guard the loot, the most just and fair and law-abiding citizen of them all, Aristides and his tribe, and the other nine tribes began moving back to Athens. Now, something worth pointing out here is that the legend of Marathon, the celebration of it today, is that the Athenians sent a runner back to Athens to give news that they had actually won the battle. And then after this man said, we have won, he fell down and died. Assuming that this is the same runner that had brought that message to Sparta for help, and a lot of the sources point out that it is, he had covered 140 miles in two days. A marathon to this guy was like a nice warm-up before his serial. So the real accomplishment here and the legend of the modern-day marathon doesn't come from this runner so much as it comes from the actual army of Athens. They had to book it back. It took about seven hours to run after fighting a battle, running in the middle of the day while wearing full armor. But they pulled it off. 
It was about a seven-hour march, but it was a 12-hour voyage by sea. And so when the Persians came around that peninsula and showed up ready to take Athens, which they thought was going to be empty, there was an army standing in front of them, which had to be confusing at first. Where did this army come from? But it did not take long to recognize that this was the very army that had just beaten them, standing on the beaches, rank and file, and ready to go again. And the Persians did not want any part of this. They turned around, and they left. A couple days after this, some Spartans arrived. It was a force of 2,000. It was the aid that they had promised. They were all for fulfilling their promises. They just had to wait until their festival was over. These Spartans, though, since the battle was already done, they asked to tour the battlefield. And when they did, they began to gain a little bit more respect for the Athenians. In the coming battle against the Persians, this was one of the giant things that bolstered the Athenian reputation, the way that they had, almost single-handedly with just some help from Plataea, defended Greece against the Persians. As a side note here, I really have to hand it to the Plataeans. Athens and Sparta, you know, locally, they're the big kids on the block. They're used to being able to push people around, and so when the Persians shows up, it kind of makes sense that they would be able to justify their pride to actually go and fight these Persians. What's really impressive to me is these small little towns like Plataea, and they can only field 800, maybe 1,000 at best troops at once, and they decide also to go to war with Persia. I'm sure there were some political pressures and things, but regardless, that decision of open warfare with the major superpower is very impressive. But Athens did not get off for free either. Herodotus tells us that 192 Athenians were killed, and they were given the very rare honor of being buried on the battlefield. This was the only time this would happen in Athenian history. Even one of the major playwrights that we're going to get to later, a guy named Aeschylus, or Aeschylus, depending on how you pronounce it, he was a major driver in Athenian theater a couple decades from now. But when he dies, he doesn't say anything about his plays. He only wants people to remember that he fought at Marathon. That's what went on his tombstone. Athens realized how important this fight was. And not only did Athens as a whole realize it, but Themistocles, the one that was always there, ready to try to make the connections, and I, who was important, was aware of it too. Themistocles envied the trophy of Miltiades. Themistocles was jealous. But Miltiades didn't have time to pay attention to this. You see, he had an agenda of his own. Miltiades had come from this foreign land, remember? He had spent the past several decades away from Athens, and he had his own enemies to go after. And so when he was in this high point over Athens and all of Athens was cheering him on, he came in front of the city and said, I can give you more. Follow me and I will make you rich. This is what I ask for. I need 70 of your ships. I need an army and I need money to support it. And I can make all of you rich. And of course they said yes. He had just won the biggest battle for them in their history. They were all about supporting Miltiades. And so Miltiades got these forces and he left. He didn't tell anybody where he was even going. But he set sail for this island to the southeast of Athens, kind of down in the Mediterranean a little bit. The excuse that he gave is that they supported the Persians in their invasions. But, you know, really our only source for this, Herodotus, 
doesn't believe it. He says, no, Miltiades actually had this personal grudge against this island, and he was using his fame to take advantage of it. But regardless, Miltiades went to attack this island. He set up a siege on the island, and at first everything went pretty well. It lasted 26 days, but on day 27, he injured his leg badly, so badly that he had to call off the siege. Everybody went back to Athens. All 70 ships, the whole army, and when they all showed back up at Athens, people were surprised to see him. He was supposed to be off making them rich, remember? And so once everybody realized that his plan had failed and he was back, they were mad, and they charged him. He was tried in court for misleading the city. The real tragedy of this, too, is that his leg had gotten worse since he came back, and so a lot of the common thought is that he was barely even coherent during this trial. He was kind of laying off to the side, couldn't even defend himself or explain what happened. And so he was found guilty. The fine that they hit him with was an insane amount of money. It was 50 talents. And it's kind of hard to give a good comparison for how these talents track compared to modern day currency. But the takeaway is that anytime you hear the word talent, you need to think, okay, this is a lot of money. One talent is what an average worker would make in over 10 years. 10 years. So 50 talents, it would take somebody 500 years of working just to pay this off. To assign this fine to a single individual was crazy. He couldn't pay it, of course, because he was incapacitated. And so he was thrown into prison and gangrene set in in his leg, and he died. Just like that, Miltiades was dead. Now consider this. What has Miltiades been doing for the past several years of his life? We've talked about it time and time again on this podcast. He was not someone that was in the background or in the shadows. He was a tyrant in this foreign land. He was fighting with and against Persia. He had barely made it back to Athens with Persia chasing him the whole way. He had been playing at high stakes for 23 years, and had pulled it off. He comes back to Athens, and he is dead in less than five years. And although it would be unfair to directly assign the death of Miltiades to the people of Athens, the tragedy is there nonetheless, because once Miltiades is dead, this fine doesn't just go away. It's passed on to his family, and he has one daughter and one son. The son is going to come thundering into this podcast in a couple episodes, but for right now, he's a nobody. He's in his early 20s, and he's only known as a fool. I'm sure that none of this was lost on Themistocles. I would like to imagine that Themistocles thought of the warning that his dad told him years and years ago, where he pointed out the old triremes left on the beaches to rot saying that this is how Athens treats its public men. This was exactly what happened to Miltiades after all. But Themistocles wasn't done yet. He was still planning. But for now, he had to remain in the shadows. Because right after the Battle of Marathon, Aristides, his main rival in Athens, was elected to be Archon. Aristides, remember, tended to skew more towards the side of the aristocracy. But after this battle where Athens had almost single-handedly saved Greece, they were pretty confident. And so they started pushing Aristides. What they wanted was for the laws to be changed so that 
not only was the Archon, basically the, the top dog in Athens, no longer selected by vote, but by lot. What they were pushing for here was like us trying to select the president by drawing names out of a hat. And Aristides considered this. He did respect the people. He had seen what they had done. He had been right there in the thick of the fighting. And he realized that they really were due this honor. Also, he was scared of what they might do if he turned them down. So he gave it to them. The Archon of Athens was now selected by lot. However, it's not as crazy as it might sound at first. The lottery didn't mean just anybody could be selected for Archon. It consisted really only of people of good standing. So this means that they couldn't draw a name out of a hat. Turns out it's your drunk friend Mykonos that's now Archon of Athens, and so you'd have to pull him out of the gutter, swear him in, and then he'd be running the city. And then during this time, there are about 1,300 positions in Athens that are public. Of those 1,300 positions, 100 of them are selected by election. The other 1,200 are by lot. This is how things are done in Athens. Also, generally speaking, there's not really a concept of executive order. Anything that happened in Athens had to be passed through the assembly. So the president might be chosen at random, but he had to get everything through Congress, and Congress consisted of 30,000 Athenians. And then here's one final thought for you on lottery in Athens. This is a more democratic process, not just because you're drawing people, but because a system where everyone is free to be elected clearly favors the rich. It did back then, and it even does today still. Consider this. In 2012, the average cost to win a congressional campaign was $1.6 million dollars. In the Senate, it was $10.4 million. But in fairness, the cost to win a Senate election does vary a little bit more. And so, you know, you might have a pretty cheap year and you could win your seat in the Senate for $8 million. Very affordable. This is exactly what the people in Athens were looking to avoid by using a pre-screened lottery system instead of the election system. Athens was powerful. The people were enabled... And in 487, just to drive this point home, the very first successful ostracism took place. Ostracism, remember, being when the assembly votes and with a quorum of 6,000 people, somebody can be kicked out of the city for 10 years. All the property is held safe and they're welcome back after 10 years, but for those 10 years, they have got to get out of Dodge. This ostracism took place with a relative of Hippias. Athens was no longer flirting with Persia. Any connections that they had with Persia were quite literally sent out the door. This interim from Persia interference was not wasted by the Athenians, and Aristides and Themistocles went back to the rivalry. Aristides was becoming popular. I mean, really popular. After being selected to guard the loot won at Marathon, then he was elected as Archon, and then he gave the people the ability to be selected by lot. So yeah, he was the guy in Athens right now. Aristides lived a pretty humble life. Really, he just sought what was best for the city. And so it was by this mentality that people started to call him the Just. I mean, as a nickname, like a title, you have... Alexander the Great, you have Ivan the Terrible, 
You have Aristides the Just. It was part of who he was. And Themistocles began to get bitter. He had already lost his fame to Miltiades, right? He was setting himself up as this popular person in Athens. He was the Archon in 493 when Miltiades showed up. And then he lost his glory to Miltiades because he had won the Battle of Marathon. And now that Miltiades was out of the picture, Aristides came in, giving the people power, being called the just. And so this is when the rivalry of Aristides and Themistocles really came to a head. They would fight each other in the assembly for control of Athens and to try to pass legislation, each one going back and forth. But what made everything boil down to a single point was in 483. Now in 483, this giant silver vein was opened. It was even called a fountain by some of the ancient sources. And traditionally, what would happen when Athens had uncovered a whole bunch of extra money was that it would be distributed evenly to the people of Athens. And so this is what Aristides pitched. This is our tradition. This is what we should do. This seems like, he would probably say, the just thing to do. But Themistocles had a different vision. He wanted ships. He wanted triremes. Whereas everyone else thought the Persian problem was over. Themistocles saw this rest as the eye of the storm. He thought Persia was gathering its forces and eventually, one day, Athens would have to fight Persia again. And so he wanted a navy. But he didn't want to scare anybody. He knew that by bringing up, hey, this giant power is going to come back and try to crush us again, guys, would not make him popular at all. And so instead, what he said was that, remember this small island off our coast that has been giving us trouble? Remember, it's a den of piracy. It keeps messing with our shipping. This is why we need to build a navy. We can go take them out and secure this area for ourselves. And so this is what he pushed in the assembly, and Aristides pushed back. They went back and forth, Aristides trying to say, let's divide the wealth between the people, Themistocles saying, no, we need to set ourselves up for power and take out this small island, and nobody could win. It was a stalemate. Tom Holland describes the mind of Themistocles as serpentine, which I think is terrific. Themistocles has an idea. Even though Aristides is renowned in the city as the just, Themistocles figures out a way to turn this against him. He starts spreading rumors that Aristides has set himself up, in secret, as a tyrant. Themistocles is saying that Aristides is judging judicial cases by himself. He's deciding the outcome, and in this way is shaping the city secretly. Remember, these Athenians were hardcore about their justice. It was one of the major reforms that Cleisthenes and even Solon made over a hundred years before this. I like to think of the Athenians thinking of justice the same way as we Americans think of freedom. But Themistocles feeds this to the public for months, spreading rumors. And so when it comes time for Athens to decide who should be ostracized, if anybody, people are starting to lean towards Aristides. Everybody shows up, this massive gathering. Remember, at a minimum, it takes 6,000 people to kick somebody out of the city for 10 years. And so there are these thousands and thousands of Athenians all gathered. And Aristides is walking amongst them, trying to figure out you know, who might be ostracized. And while everybody's voting, this man walks up to Aristides 
And he hands Aristides what to us would look like this small piece of broken pottery. But to the ancient Athenians, it's a voting ballot. You would take this old piece of broken pottery, scratch in the name of whoever you wanted to be kicked out of the city. So this man walks up to Aristides, hands him his broken piece of pottery, and says, Excuse me, I can't read or write. Would you mind writing on here the name of Aristides? He doesn't recognize Aristides. He doesn't know who he is. And Aristides is shocked. He looks back at this man and says, What wrong has this Aristides ever done to you? And the man says nothing. I'm just kind of tired of him being called the just all the time. And Aristides takes this man's small clay shard, scratches his own name into it, and hands it back to the man. Aristides just voted himself out of Athens for 10 years. And he's not the only one. Themistocles has done it. He has accused Aristides of being a secret tyrant, had the people so fed up with his nickname that Aristides is kicked out of the city. As Aristides is leaving the city, he says that he hopes that the people of Athens will have no reason to ever remember his name. He's just as devoted to justice as ever. Miltiades is dead. Aristides is gone. Now, Themistocles stands alone, and he has a chance to finally push his agenda, to finally say that Athens should build this navy, and so they waste no time getting started. Now, these ships that they build, we're going to get more into the actual ships and how they fight and how you'd want to crew one of these ships next episode. But for now, what's important is the effect on the city. Themistocles wants a fleet, remember? He doesn't want just a few ships. A couple sources that I've seen say just 100 ships, but most say 200, and that's what I'm going to go with. So let's step back for a moment here. What does it look like if Athens is going to build 200 ships? Each one of these ships is crewed by 200 people, the vast majority of which are rowers, which are not of the wealthiest classes. They're the poor classes. You're looking at 170 rowers per ship. For 200 ships, what Themistocles is proposing here is not just to have a fleet. It's not just to make Athens a major sea power. It's a public program that's going to give a huge economic boost and it's a political revolution in a very subtle way, a way that Athens has probably never seen before. Right now, the hoplites are the elite class because they are the ones that defend the city, and the only way you can be a hoplite is if you can afford all the armor and weapons that come with it. What if Athens turns to sea power? What if every person in the assembly now has a stake in defending Athens? Be it intentional or not, Themistocles is legitimizing the role of the poor in the city. Now, no matter your level of wealth, even if you can't afford a little butter knife to go to war with, you have a role in protecting the city. And so as Athens spools up and starts cranking out these ships, as they begin to purchase the lumber and gather provisions and put them onto the ships... The poor become more and more powerful with each ship that rolls out of the docks and plunges into the Aegean Sea. At a peak here, we're talking two ships per week, and so it's only a matter of two, maybe three years before Athens has cranked out 200 ships and the position of defending the city has been flipped on its head. This was the masterstroke of Themistocles. I mean, in one move... 
He got in Aristides, kicked out of the city, his largest rival, set himself up as the most influential person in the city, boosted the economy of Athens with something that was essentially the equivalent of the Public Works Administration program during our own Great Depression. And he did all of this while he was secretly preparing to go to war with Persia again. While these ships are being cranked out, people are watching what's going on around them. And it does not take long to realize that this small island to the southwest of Athens might not actually be the real target of Themistocles. All the guesswork in Greece is put to rest when a small note arrives in Sparta. It's tough to tell if the tone of it is jeering or is it a friendly warning. It's from the old king of Sparta, the one that Cleomenes deposed and who then went and took shelter in Persia. And although the tone of the note is tough to decipher, the message is very clear. Persia is gathering its strength, and it's coming back. As always, thanks a lot for listening to History in the Making.